Our lively podcast explores the stories that influence our life, faith, and culture. This space is an invitation to step away from the divisiveness that removes our humanity while challenging you to step into the stories, journeys, and experiences of our fellow humans. We aren't the left and we aren't the right. We are the middle. the middle podcast hi friends i hope you're well sounded like i was responding but i wasn't i was also saying hello (laughs) that's okay you can you can respond and say hello yes (laughs) this is joy your podcast co-host she's the host i'm the co-host i'm no that's not true at all you guys we have a super duper uber duper awesome episode like i had to make up a word it's so awesome uh we have our first interview guest my friend sarah dornboss and let's just be real all of us need a sarah dornboss in our lives and we just were incredibly blessed to have her on our episode today just dropping some knowledge but um sarah and i first met several years ago at our church, um, I think we were introduced by um, a mutual friend. And after one conversation with her, I was like, this girl is legit. And, you know, you'll probably have the same sort of reaction to her. She's Mm -hmm. crazy smart and just so passionate. And she like communicates in a way that's like heartful and beautiful. And so it's just, it was just so fun to have this conversation with her. Yeah, but before we get into the interview, um, Joy and I want to share our experiences with hearing, watching the stories, lives, or the end of lives of three people. I know you've heard their names, at least hopefully you have heard their names, or unfortunately you have. Um, You've all heard of Ahmaud Arbery, you've all heard Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. But we want to just like share our experiences, um, what it was like hearing, um, you know, with George Floyd. For me, I the only one I watched was George Floyd, you know, watching some of these things um, because it really had a huge impact on us. Like personally, after George mm-hmm. Floyd, I can't even remember who comes first. Was it George Floyd or Ahmaud? It was Ahmaud Arbery. Ahmaud Arbery was first. And I had already had experience, like, watching someone die on film, like, not in a movie. Like, it's just, it's different when it's, like, real life, of course. And just, like, remembering that trauma, and I didn't want to repeat that with the Maude Arbery. And it just, like, happened for me with George Floyd. I think I just, like, caught a glimpse of it. And mm-hmm. I was like, I do not want to see this. Like, it, it, it's traumatizing. Yeah. But there are so many messages that I struggled with and received through hearing these stories and like watching part of these stories. Even Brianna Taylor's like that was just such a confusing. It really like brought up a lot of conflict for me mm-hmm. in like, ah, oh, but it wasn't even like a civilian. Like, what do we do mm-hmm. about yeah. police force, yeah. you know? killing people because doesn't this happen all the time but like this is clearly a wrong situation they can't just go busting into people's houses and killing them and not giving any like restitution like yeah but not knowing what the solution is yeah i think those three incidences put together broke the dam yeah and we experienced that like it broke the dam in my life in the life of my family in the life of the black community and in in the the cultural setting of our nation and there was no repairing the dam like it's done and i actually didn't watch the video of george floyd i only saw the images i watched the video of Ahmaud Arbery being murdered and 
my initial reaction it was it was very ironic because it felt like these men were hunting something like just their movement and their reaction and I don't want to further traumatize our listeners but there's just this moment where Armand Arbery runs toward runs towards one of the men to try to grab the gun and then it's just shot and you kind of see him stumble back and then in his just like desire to live goes towards the man again trying to like protect himself and that was it was the most surreal moment of my life and I had watched videos of Michael Brown and Eric Garner and like all these different ones but that was like okay there is (laughs) there is no coming coming back from that And then what happened, what transpired in the weeks to come was even more just wild (laughs) and surreal. What was that time like for you, Della? Well, I want to recall, like, I don't know, I guess it was all like a flurry. It all kind of happened, even though George Floyd seemed to be like the real catalyst. So much going on. Just the, like, hearing the the conflict in reactions like oh well he was a criminal or like oh Mm -hmm. actually he was like you know back in church and like discipling young men and like yeah they had being like why does that matter and just like feeling like wow it really do we really not matter yeah do we even you know which is funny because it's like yeah the whole black lives matters was a thing but even like joining behind that phrase because that phrase of course is like super easy for me to join with insane but like even getting repercussion from saying that from my christian friends it was like added to the craziness of like what do i feel here (laughs) how do i react i just want to feel i feel very not okay and i'm not sure exactly why but i just want to get back to like homeostasis back to you know if you know anything about enneagrams i'm enneagram nine and i want my peace (laughs) like Mm. just wanting to get back to peace and like but not being able to because there's like this conflict in me and and, like there's trauma in me but then also like everybody around me asking too like how are you doing and how can we help or like what should we do or i've read this and you know asking my opinion on it it was just it was it was just a lot it was yeah, it and was a lot. <laughs> I didn't want to be like I had to take I had to take a huge step back from social media because it was yeah. uh it was like a loud roar. Yeah. It was a loud roar and there's absolutely no rest there and it was really taking a toll on my soul and I was like I had to take a step back and just like stop just like stop listening to, you know, everybody. Just take some time alone yeah. quiet. I think I did the opposite. Yeah. I went to social media because I a like I wanted to check in with my black fam, like my community, see how they were doing. And that's just the quickest way, you know, outside of text messaging, but just some of the places I follow. But it was, I think, the most just chilling part of the entire thing was the silence of leaders and significant leaders in our political realm in our church community just complete apathy almost and 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 I know they wanted to talk about like what do we say like what do we do what do we but it wasn't it wasn't that it was like well <laughs> it is mm. what it is and you know we don't want to step in a pile of poo poo by saying anything so we're just going to say nothing at all and that that experience that happening that was further salt it was like sulfuric acid in the wound like leaders that i thought had significant prophetic ministries just and still haven't showed up to say mm. anything and I remember after the George Floyd video hit my cell phone ringing and we will talk about this a little bit further, but just people like my white friends or friends from other cultures 
you know, just saying like, I didn't know, I didn't know. And I'm just like, <laughs> like, what do you want me to say? Like, uh, yeah, like we've been seeing these incidences for so, so long. We have been seeing and experiencing police brutality. And it's not, they're not isolated events. They're events on top of events, on top of trauma, on top of history, on top of events. Mm-hmm. And I had nothing to say. I had nothing to say. And I retreated and I just remember trying to like work and just being just numb Mm -hmm. and trying to like get back to my routine, numb. And so even though that was palpable, like leaders in the Christian church just, and, and, and not only that, just like, you know, the other naysayers being like, well, George Floyd was a criminal. Like just seeing people not show support for the black community, that was palpable. But one thing that was, that shifted the tide for me were our allies, our friends mm-hmm. <laughs> who have done the work, who are in the work, like Sarah Dornboss, who, and, and it sounds bad because it's like, we don't need like a white savior in this, but like they really just stepped into the forefront and, yeah. and literally were like, you know, I had a few friends um, and you know who you are, friends, <laughs> who just stood up and they're like, you know, don't J- just just be like you have so much on your shoulders. And this is time for us to take up the weight and ownership of that. It was mm-hmm. it was insane. Like I was just like, oh, I didn't realize that. Like we had friends for this, like even though there's other people completely denying these realities, like there are people already set up. And it was funny because, like, I wouldn't call them, like, they wouldn't call themselves allies. You know, they just call themselves, they just part of the work. But the people who call themselves allies were the ones just, like, we're just going to do a one-shot stop on social media and then, like, leave it at that. But, like, no, these were friends who were, like, I am going to come and I'm going to put my arms around your shoulders and help you walk through these next few months. And that was beautiful. Yeah, and that's really why we wanted to invite Sarah. She has so much to say. Yeah. Um, you'll hear there's like multiple mic drops. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she's someone we trust because she's she continually makes the choices, the hard choices to be an ally. Yeah. So we're just really excited for you to Yeah. Listen in. Listen in. Yeah. So here we go. So my name is Sarah. I am a former lettuce truck driver and public school teacher (laughs) and turned contemplative and racial justice advocate. Um, I am on staff at my church as a local missionary to run a mentoring program for at-risk students and wear many different hats there. I am also a trained spiritual director. I love hiking and running and speaking Haitian Creole. That's so awesome. (laughs) It's like so random. Sometimes when I sit down to like summarize my life I'm like this is basically a hot mess of a (laughs) are you serious that sounds like a life well lived (laughs) yeah um and so one of the reasons why we brought you on this show so um we are you know talking about issues of racism and culture and church but like especially the current events like what happened after Mm -hmm. Maude Arbery, um, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd were murdered, and how that was kind of like the culmination of a, you know, it was it was more of a release of anxiety from mm-hmm. the black community, but also yeah. <laughs> a, a incredibly increase <laughs> of just like what do we do with this now. What do we do with this cultural awareness? And so a lot of that time we were looking towards our allies who are already in the fight and doing it well and not trying to just like post a bunch of stuff on social media. And so you you were one of those people that we considered an ally. Mm -hmm. Has he been doing this work so for so long and speaking truth into the chaos and everything? So um I just want to talk about okay so what is allyship because now we're hearing that word a lot more than we ever really heard is that the same as advocacy do you feel like it's a difference or kind of how would you describe that 
Well, I think that's such an important question. And I just feel really honored that you would even say that about me because I feel like I'm still trying to figure it out. But um, I guess for me, the ultimate difference between the two is that I feel like I don't get to determine if I'm an ally or not. That's for other people who see my actions. Mm. Um, and I just graduated with my degree in social justice. And my thesis advisor said to me, like, part of the problem is that with our institutions, with our theology, our education, we never really ask people what makes a good ally. Mm. And so you can go your whole life without even wrestling with that question. And I think that inability to confront the question leads to an unexamined life for a lot of different people who are posting, you know, on Instagram, their black screen and trying, considering themselves an ally, but are people of color experiencing that as allyship? And there's a really interesting story in scripture that I have like thought about a lot and relates to this question with Pharaoh's daughter. So it's in Exodus one and two. And I feel like her life is an example of what it means to be a faithful ally. I don't want to overcredit her, but at the same time, like she goes ahead and breaks the law. She disobeys her father and she saves Moses, who she was taught to see as disposable because of his ethnicity. So Mm. she intervenes, saves his life sends him off and then raises him in her father's house as her own child. Like, I think that's so radical. Mm. And then like the most powerful person in the country is your father. And he makes a law that this child has to be put to death because her father's a bigot. And then she ultimately Mm -hmm. says like, I'm not going to subscribe to bigotry. I'm going to break this cycle of generational in our family, this generational separation. And I'm going to stand up to you and confront you with it. I feel like that is prophetic. That, that to is, me is an wow. ally. <laughs> wow. And I think so good. the second part of your question really, um, it reminded me, Rachel Cargill uh, is someone I follow on Instagram and she says, we need to start shifting um, the word from ally to accomplice. Instead mm-hmm. of saying, I see you, I'm going to use my voice for you. It needs to be, yes. I'm here alongside of you to upend the system that is killing you every day. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like being an accomplice has more of like a criminal connection if you say you're an accomplice. Yeah. But an advocate, the word that you used um, in your question, Joy, um, is imperative. I feel like we cannot just have these like small actions, but we have to sacrifice along the way. Um, and Frederick Douglass said, I prayed for freedom for 20 years, but I received no answer until I prayed with my legs. So there's yeah. an active action involved. And um, even in French, the word avocat is the word for lawyer. And that's a person who defends justice and works for what is what is right. So advocacy is especially important for people with privilege. Um, you know, as a woman, I didn't get the right to vote until men actually thought it was worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. And I think that until a solid group of white people are willing to advocate for racial justice, it's just not gonna happen. Um, there's heroic work being done by people of color on the front lines, and I don't mean to minimize that at all, but because white people hold most of the institutional power in every societal structure, I think they are ultimately the ones that will have to help change the structures. Um, um, one other aspect that I felt like was worth teasing out is that there's this interesting thing in our culture uh, where someone like Candace Owens is a paid advocate for a partisan yes. perspective. And I don't think that a lot of white people understand that there's like a monetary exchange taking place. And of course that doesn't totally disqualify her, but I think it means we need to understand her agenda and take in her perspective. Like we should be doing with all information that advocacy can be bought and paid for in our culture. And I, Mm. I think there's a real nuance to that that isn't fairly well understood. Yes. And Dominique Gilliard in his book, Rethinking Incarceration, has the tagline, advocating for justice that restores. To just learn about incarceration is one thing, but to actually advocate Mm -hmm. for it is what makes change. And that to me is the difference. Um, Most protesters Mm -hmm. and organizers I have met are doing all this in their spare time. Like they have jobs and they are hard at work advocating for change. And for me, it's the sphere of public education where I feel like my calling is and where the focus of my master's degree, but accomplices who are doing actual work, not allies, um, are really the change makers in my, in my yeah. worldview. So I think the difference to me is that advocates are doing some of the heavy lifting to change things over time. That's good. 
Yeah. Ooh, I don't know why that. <laughs> That's good. That was so powerful. I don't know. It just brought so many tears to my eyes because I'm just like, yes, mm. like there is certain realities to this work that goes past, you know, just making one phone call to, you know, some the yeah. the you know attorney general of the state yeah. to like arrest there's like all these different things it's like this is a mm-hmm. life walk yeah and we have to have the both and right like yeah we can pray and move our yeah. feet like we yeah, have to yeah. do both yeah exactly but our over spiritualized charismatic church it's like you do the you know you interact with the spiritual and that's all you need to do and it was like in the Bible, none of that, like, they interacted with the spiritual and the physical all the time. You know what I mean? Yes. Daniel, when he was waiting for answer to prayer, he was praying, but he was still doing his job to get his yeah, stuff done. You know, and then mm-hmm. God came and was like, all right, I'm matching up the spiritual and the physical world right now. And that's kind of our job to, like, bring the kingdom. And I think a lot of Christians believe, like, well, this world is a crapshoot anyway, so why even engage in some of these hard issues that are so polarizing and, like, you know, everyone has, like, a racist grandma. Like, why do I need to talk to her? (laughs) Like, we're all going to just die and leave this world anyways. And I was like, wow, that's just not the purposes of the kingdom at all. Like, Jesus is like, go find these five loaves and two fish. And, like, he still does the miracle. Yeah. But there's a way that he's relating in both the physical and the spiritual world. And he does the miracle. It's not up to us, but we got to show up with our fish and our bread. Yeah, (laughs) that's good. Exactly. I like that. And I love, I leave it to Sarah to drop some, like, and the root word is French. And I'm like, I I love it. No. But I just think about like how, yeah, the, the term advocate stems from like the, the meaning of like a lawyer and it's like, what happens when you're a lawyer, you are standing up for someone's rights and, you know, supporting them, not maybe not necessarily supporting them, but like being a voice for them mm-hmm. in their time of bondage and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of what you have to do. Um, and I think a lot of people just think like, well, and, and that's another episode just talking about how like you know the the black victimhood that a lot of a lot of the narrative that Candace Owens kind of talks about but just like how even like when you are advocating for something like it may not be 1000% like you know this person's not you know innocent or not guilty right 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 but you are still in them in the messiness and you know being a voice for them Mm -hmm. um and that's it's a hard thing to do it I think it takes sacrifice and I think in that people lose stuff and when you don't know what you're gonna lose Mm -hmm. then you don't show up in the ring you gotta be ready to lose stuff you gotta be ready to lose something so I love that our next question is, um, <laughs> so <laughs> we wanted to talk about, like, I guess all of these sort of, like, terms popping up, like, what is anti-racism and, like, what does that look like to you? I think we kind of talked about that, but maybe flush it out some more. Yeah, so in February, before the pandemic, I went to a workshop put on by CORE, which is Corps Congregations Organizing for Racial Reconciliation. And they had this definition that has helped me so much. Um, They talked about the three-legged stool of anti-racism, which is education, self-reflection, and action, and how all three are equally important. So early in my journey, I thought activism and action were like the most important things. Mm. But as I've grown, I've realized how valuable and important education is that I will never arrive at a place where I completely understand our history, but that that's Mm. important as a foundation to my anti-racist work is to yeah. know how things have unfolded in our country. Yeah. Um, so I, I initially was like, I can find the box to check that says I'm anti-racist and be done. And actually like this will be probably my entire life. Yeah. And then the self-reflection piece, I think was the last one for me to buy into probably because as a white person, I wasn't used to connecting how what I was learning was impacting my life. I thought it was primarily about other people, but I just took a class on racial trauma offered by Fellowship Church, and there were two weeks they talked about white racial trauma, and at first I was like, what? And at the same time, I feel like because all white people benefit from white supremacy and anti-blackness, we are complicit 
unless we are actively anti-racist. So it's easy for me without self-reflection to perpetuate white supremacy without even knowing it. Um, mm. So I think that has been a really helpful image, that three-legged stool. And then the continuous action of education, self-reflection and action um, is an ongoing decision because I have to keep staying engaged in my relationships and in the systems. Um, Willie Jennings says white supremacy is a parasite that can't survive without a host and a host Ooh. attached to to in I know. Hold on a second. <laughs> wow. Can you say that one more time? That it's profound, right? Okay. Yes. <laughs> So Willie Jennings says, white supremacy is a parasite that can't survive without a host. The host it attached itself to in America was Christianity. Ooh. And if we as Christians are unable to see and name white supremacy as it's happening, like we are complicit, which is why self-reflection is such an important piece of anti-racist work. Yes. Um, and I listened to a podcast recently that Daniel Hill was being interviewed and he said the most hostile environment for having conversations about race is the white evangelical church. Mm. So being anti-racist as a Christian means learning to identify how my church and my theology have been co-opted by white supremacy and racism and then being committed to seeing it, naming it and rooting it out. So that, that's my work as an anti-racist white person and constantly making sure, mm -hmm. am I spending too much time reading books and education? Because that's interesting, but I'm not showing up in spaces actively or mm -hmm. I'm not doing the self-reflection because that's hard. Mm -hmm. And it, it helps me kind of stay balanced and see where do I need to focus on now? Am I out of balance? Um, so that's been a really useful tool as I've thought about my own anti-racist work. Mm. Mic drop. <laughs> Jeez, wow. <laughs> we are now going to uh, go and process all of this. Oh, yes, are we? We're being like, blessed. Is, is the church ready for this? No, but. Mm. Well, let's talk about that for a minute because, I mean, what was it like? It was like April, May when all of this really just started just coming yeah. to the surface. End of April, I think. And I think part of the things that Della and I were talking about were like, George Floyd, you know, the news broke and everything. And like out of nowhere, my cell phone just started blowing up from calls from people I literally haven't spoken to in a decade talking about, oh my gosh, like I can't believe like this is what the black you know, community or culture has been going through. Like I didn't know. And I'm like, you chose not to know. This has been happening since the beginning of the country. Like, you chose not to know. And I think a lot of people didn't realize that. They just thought, like, oh, now that, you know, it's documented, then, like, we know. But it's like, no, you were complicit. And you use, I mean, you were in a place of privilege. And, and granted, they're like, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't know. And, like... They're all their circles, you know, don't really talk about like no one wants to talk about racism at a work lunch or yeah, <laughs> you know, all like all of their spaces protected them from engaging yeah. in this issue, yeah. and yeah. did so to the detriment of the black community. And like George Floyd would just was just an example of like, you know, what is kind of a daily, you know, <laughs> yeah. for the community. So yeah, it's interesting in that class about trauma that I was taking. They said, you know, what's a typical response when a trauma happens? Like you see someone get hit yeah. by a car. It's shock and then denial. Like, okay, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. And that when you, when white people engage in racism, what are their typical responses? Mm. Shock. I can't believe this happened. And denial. Yeah. Oh, it must not be that bad. Yeah. And I'm like, That's a trauma response. <laughs> but it's white people unwilling to look at and name our own trauma because we just don't want to. And we right. can't use denial. That means we're not going to heal as a nation, but no. it's just the privilege of like choosing to stay rooted in that trauma instead of fully engage. Yeah. So how do people do that? Because I feel like, and, and unfortunately, like a lot of the response that I saw from the white evangelical community was, 
you know, they started posting Candace Owen videos on their Facebooks exactly. and were like, well, black people just need to get jobs and stop being victims and like get over themselves. <laughs> yeah. And that's why they're being targeted by cops. And like, <laughs> right. and just like, I, and I think that was the most astonishing thing because I was like, so you're just not going to take any ownership? Like, is that what this right. is? Like, so, but, but it's like, the, it's also, they don't have the tools to process that. Right. So what does that even look like then? Yeah, well, I think we got a lot of work to do on that front. <laughs> uh, but I also think like it's really striking to me like when, like I heard, I heard someone on a podcast say, you know, if you are reposting Candace Owen videos, first talk to your black friends. And if you don't have any black friends and have their opinion on what she's saying, like, don't repost that kind of stuff yeah. mm-hmm. um, because I think they love to share, <clears throat> excuse me. I think they love to share like something that confirms their bias because right. then they don't have to do the work of growth. Like, Oh, here's a person who's black that agrees with me. Now I am justified in my beliefs instead of having yeah. to do, do that hard work of looking at why do I even believe this? What in my life supports it? And what's yeah. the history and context behind that? And we don't like to do that work. It's painful and it's costly, but we have to, like, especially as the church. And I think that's where discipleship is really important, that churches could be on the leading edge of addressing racism, but have shied away from it because they see it as political. And I think we have to be willing and able to separate it out. It is not a political issue. It is in both Republican and Democratic systems, there is racism at play. Right. This is a spiritual root that we have to look at and understand how it's impacting people we love and care about. People who attend our churches and, and need all of us yeah. to root it out. Hmm. That's good. Yeah, personally... I, I think I'm the type of person that likes to give people the benefit of the doubt all the time um, just because like I know what it feels like to not be where other people expect you to be and I want to afford that to others you know like even just as a black person I feel like I'm not where <laughs> I don't even I don't know things sometimes too I really just don't like there is like so much that I'm learning now that I it, it can feel like shameful or kind of embarrassing and I want to afford that to others so I would love for you to share like what your journey has been just so people feel that they can take baby steps like they don't have to be ashamed for being where they are <laughs> yeah. because that's just where life has brought them mm. that's, that's just where I'm that. right where life has brought me so I don't want <laughs> people to also feel like oh man people are going to judge me because I don't know the history or I don't know x y and z so yeah if you could share a bit of your journey of like how you got to where you are now of like allyship and advocacy and mm-hmm. you know choosing yeah. to contribute to those three legs of three legs of what anti-racism <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I think too like it's never a straight line right like we don't really yeah. ever arrive I'm still in process myself and so allowing us to be human beings and like just because you're black, you're not the expert on everything. You know, like you're yes. a you are a person. And yes. yeah. giving people this space to make mistakes. Cause you know, I think one way white supremacy shows up in this work is we have to be perfect. Perfectionism is one right. supremacy. Yes. And so if I can't do it perfectly, if I don't know exactly how to word something on Facebook, I'm just not gonna say it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's white supremacy then taking over. And learning to see it as such, I can say, you know what, even if I do it wrong, even if I offend some people, I, I want to engage and I, and not letting fear stop me. Now is Facebook right. the only place I engage? Absolutely not. And I right. try to really <laughs> limit that for my own sanity. Yes. But Andre Henry has this really helpful graphic called the spectrum of allies about people that are not likely to change their minds and then people that are more in the middle and have having conversations with those people given my limited time my limited availability is really important in a strategic way um but to just kind of give some background like i should not be in this work at all like i was raised in a totally segregated white community i went to public school k through 12. i can count on one hand the number of black latinx and 
Asian people that I knew well from school. Like I was wow. completely segregated. I, I played like sports year rounds from middle school on and my team was always all white and I played against schools in our conference that were all black. Never, never questioned it. Never even understood redlining or, or why mm. my school was all white and other schools in the neighboring community were all black. It just mm-hmm. never, it was just the way things were. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I went to college, which was also a very white institution. And my first experience being in a non-white setting was when I transferred to Daystar University in Nairobi, Kenya for my senior year of college. And I knew I was gonna go into teaching in public schools and I wanted to experientially know, like, what does it feel like to be a minority? Um, and it was, it was an incredible experience. I'm so grateful for it, but it was also largely one of privilege being white in that context, people would give up their seat on the bus for me. And, and having to kind of wrestle through that was the first time I understood that being white meant something. When I was mm. growing up, I didn't understand there was any meaning or culture around it because it was the norm. And so I think it was having genuine friendships with my classmates in Kenya and then later in Haiti that really first helps me understand like, what does it look like to be an ally? And that racism was a thing. Um, those relationships, I think, helped me understand that racism was a current reality, but it wasn't until um, I started the process of adopting a little girl from Haiti in 2009 that I realized it was a thing in the U.S. I could mm. see it outside of the U.S., but I couldn't see it in my own context. And mm. this is going to sound really shallow, but I didn't want people to look at her and know she had a white mom because of her hair. So I was like reading all these hair blogs from like moms mm-hmm. who had adopted biracial or, you know, kids from other countries. And they started talking about how like their kids didn't have the same opportunities as their white biological kids. And I was like, what are they talking about? Hmm. And that was really for me, the first time it connected to my community here in the U S. And so um, that adoption fell apart with the earthquake in 2010, we weren't far enough along in the process to complete it. She didn't get humanitarian parole like other kids. Um, Mm -hmm. And so Haiti was changing to become Hague compliant and it was gonna take four and a half years. And I I just felt like for her, it was gonna be better for her to stay in Haiti. And so found a family that would take care of her. Um, And it was honestly one of the hardest decisions of my life, but I felt like if being a mom is doing what's best for your kid, then I need to do this for her and not selfishly. But that's, but I, until I was invested at the level, I, I didn't really have any comprehension. And so a couple of years later, 2012, Trayvon Martin was killed. And that's when I was like, I cannot sit back and just be a learner. I have to like stand up and say, so I went to my first protest then. Um, and then in 2016, through different people I had met at the protest, I joined our Los Angeles chapter of Surge, which is showing up for racial justice. And then I also joined White People for Black Lives chapter in LA and then got more involved with Black Lives Matter Pasadena. And so then I was really learning a lot and showing up in spaces about what what is my role in this context? What chance should I participate in and which ones are not appropriate for me to participate in and some of those kind of things. And then in 2018, I went on the civil rights tour with Fellowship Monrovia Church and I was like, I know this history, like I, I got this and I did not like I, (laughs) it was just like, I thought I knew our history and like the scales fell from my eyes and I was Mm -hmm. like, I got to do a deep dive. So it was after that civil rights tour that I decided to do my master's in social justice because I felt like I need people to help me go deeply and help me learn. Um, And then to kind of bring it to present day, this year, right after George Floyd was killed, there was a um, protest on Pentecost at Pasadena City Hall. Um, and it was like a prayer vigil as well. So I was there and I was like, how do I fit showing up at these protests in with working remotely through the pandemic full time, doing my graduate level thesis work, running a food pan, like all these other things. Uh. I was like, how do I fit protesting? And I felt like God said to me like, Sarah, like, you don't. You have been showing up at protests for years. You have been doing that work. 
what I need you to do is talk to white people. And I was like, oh no. And then, and then. Oh. <laughs> so I'm like literally standing on the steps of city hall, having this conversation with God. And, and he said, I feel like the spirit says to me, like, Sarah, you can be most impactful with your limited time if you engage other white people. And I was literally wow. like, okay, fine. And I like roll my eyes at God. And like, it was like the next mm. day I got an invitation from John Williams from the fellowship center. Of Racial yeah. Organization. He was like, Hey, we're doing these table talks. Would you lead one? And I was like, yes, I am leading a table talk for white uh. people. And I had the worst attitude. And yet <laughs> I, I have like 22 people sign up, two men, 20 women and wow. half the women are over 65 and I'm like oh wow God bless your soul. right and I'm literally like okay I'm prepared for every argument anyway they were like the most like ready to engage and mm-hmm. various points on the journey but I did not have any like here's where like I didn't have to have any super difficult conversations and I was like I actually really liked it and I was like mm. okay maybe God's right after yes. all. <laughs> <laughs> he did you a favor like yes. yeah so I think that's been sort of my journey from like growing up having absolutely no clue that this was even necessary work to kind of stepping out of my comfort zone into protest and then realizing like how can I with my gifts and my abilities be most effective and will that continue to change yes probably Mm. but for for now I feel like that's been sort of the overall arc of my journey yeah I feel like relationship is kind of highlighted in there like without key relationships you wouldn't have realized certain things and I feel like that's really huge yeah knowing people and really being in relationship with them like it changes your life because it's not just a label again like we were saying but you have someone's name someone's story you see their yeah. face yeah Ooh. yeah and that yeah. is a journey yeah, like really. <laughs> <laughs> you went to the mountaintop and then you were brought down to the valley and i think a lot of people live their lives at the mountaintop like yeah not knowing understanding or experiencing what it is and uh, t- to be Black in America, and I think that's one thing social media has helped <laughs> with yeah. in society, you know, is like, because news just spreads at a rapid mm-hmm. pace, and yeah, so thank you. Like, thank you for showing up and, and following those prompts, and because yeah. I know at any point in time, you could have been totally entitled to tap out of the movement of the fight of the work Mm -hmm. and you didn't and you're still not and so I think there's something beautiful about that and I love that you were like you felt a prompting to specifically speak into white spaces (laughs) we need that so much (laughs) yeah Remember how I didn't, but God did. Yeah, well, <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you did a little eye roll or whatever. But I think, I think that is something that we realize what we need. And I have very few friends like you who are willing to, you know, engage in those spaces. But when they do, it's so like amazing and fun because it's like oh they're not gonna listen to me all day like harp on these same things but for some reason other people will engage like hey I've done the work you could do the work too and this is kind of what it looks like and so I think that's that's been a gift to the black community and it's and it's tough because and one thing I want to talk to you about is like there's the good white people out there that's like, well, I never made a racist remark in my entire life. And, you know, my mailman is black and I, you know, give him a Christmas <laughs> gift. And, and I felt like that's one thing that the, the church and just, I think the nation in general is struggling with is like, well, I'm not a racist. Right. But it's like, but. <laughs> that's where that right. self introspection yeah. comes in. And that's, that's a huge part of your journey. Like, how do people, like, instead of saying, like, well, I'm a good white person and, like, I would never do this stuff, engage in yeah. this level of work without becoming too overwhelmed? Because I know yeah. there's, like, 4,000 books on this subject now. Like, what are some, like, three things you would say? Like, here's how to start mm-hmm. the work. Well, I feel like the very first step is to 
have a common definition of race and racism because mm -hmm. I think there's so many, like the person in your example has a definition of racism that's basically like individual acts of meanness. That's racism and I'm not racist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the definition that's more widely accepted is that it's prejudice, so individual acts of meanness plus systems, systems and power, basically. Mm -hmm. And so if I can step back and see, maybe I'm not individually being racist, but I as a white person am benefiting from these racist systems and structures that were set up to benefit me, yeah. then I can, then I have a more robust definition of racism. Right. So I feel like doing the groundwork of understanding like that race is a social construct. It's not a biological yes. reality. Like right. that yes. a mom can give birth to twins and one passes as white and one looks black. And mm -hmm. that race is this made up concept in the United States that has everything to do with power. And the reason whiteness was created was to give rights to land owning white yep. men, <laughs> you know? And, and so mm -hmm. I feel like there's a sort of basic level of definitions and a really sort of I don't know, basic level of understanding American history that, that becomes the foundation of any work. And then I would say you have to have community. You, have, you, you cannot sustain this work on your own, even if you are mm. very stubborn like I am. Like you mm. have to have other people that, you, that, that share this, this value. Um, and then I would say like for me, the contemplative part of myself has to have practices that can sustain me for the long haul because it is overwhelming. Mm. It is easy to burn right. out. And yeah. as a white person, I, I have that privilege to check out and I, I don't want to, but I also can't do this 24 seven. So, mm. so I think that that combination of kind of having an understanding of history and basic vocabulary, having a community that can support and sustain you, and then having spiritual practices that reconnect you to God's heart for justice in this particular way that's i think what allows me to keep going on the days mm -hmm. when i'm completely discouraged and because i mean how many people have there been after george floyd like anthony yes. mcclain in pasadena a few yes. weeks ago you know mm -hmm. and it's just like this is not going to stop like somebody said you know racism isn't getting worse it's just getting filmed yeah and so there will continue to be these names these hashtags and until we attack the structures and the systems that perpetuate it, like policing, like public education, like incarceration. I mean, there's so many on-ramps. That to me is the piece that is um, optional, is like, where do I feel most called in the work of anti-racism? But anti-racism is not an option because it is such an affront to who God made Black people to be. Like we have to, anyone who calls themselves a Christian in my mind has to be involved in anti-racism work. Yeah. how that plays out, whether it's with youth or with incarcerated individuals or whatever, that is what I think is the optional piece of the kingdom engagement. But it is not optional for me any longer to say, well, racism was one thing I care about, but I also care about these other things because racism is the system that upholds and supports all the disparities that we see in our kingdom efforts in the church. Wow. Well said. Another <laughs> mic drop. We should have a counter like that. I know. Edit it in. <laughs> Sometimes though, I'm talking and I'm like, uh, I can get fired from my job for this, but at this point, <laughs> fair enough, and it's fine. I really trust God. To no, do we, we do not want to get you fired. <laughs> but it's hard to be part of an institution that you know is perpetuating it, yeah. and from the inside try and support and sustain those necessary conversations because I feel like I'm and and not not because of my own like goodness but because of God's grace in my life I feel like I have this level of awareness mm. that I want and need my coworkers at the church to have and they're mm. not there yet so how do I stay in relationships stay engaged and keep encouraging their greater awareness until we as yeah. a church make some really systemic changes yeah um, so that's again, I think a lifelong task. <laughs> yeah, that that certainly is. And we appreciate the work because <laughs> I think there was a part where um 
like just in the conversations I was having, people are like, what do I do? What do I do? Like be my social justice guru. And I literally would just point them to your Facebook post. I'd be like, just go follow Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Follow like a couple of, 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 a couple of my other friends as well Mm -hmm. who are posting stuff who are Mm -hmm. just, you know, engaged and do this work so beautifully. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I don't, I don't black people. We tired. Exactly. I don't think <laughs> we're so tired. And the last thing we want to do is like be your tour guide in this work because right. we're already dealing with our own trauma. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tired and we don't know everything. And we don't know. I didn't know. I really I'm like, I don't know. I'm learning okay. too. Like, I'm, yeah. We we grew up in the public education system that yes. loved a lot of history out. I didn't know, you know, the truth about Abraham Lincoln until I was in college. Like, right. I was just like, so we are all becoming woke. Like, we are mm-hmm. all on our different levels of woke. Like, right. Seriously. Frustrating because I'm like, oh, I was even like in these systems that yes. were structured to um, negate and cover up my own history, my family history. Absolutely. And yeah, that is another episode, but like <laughs> we're all learning and it's yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded when you're talking about how you realized you were white and like that means something. Mm. I had a very similar experience as well. And it didn't happen until like 2016. I don't know. I just, I just, in my life, just the life that I had, I didn't really think about my blackness at all. I mean, I don't know, I guess just by the grace of God, but I remember having that moment like, I'm black and that means something to people. Mm-hmm. And that is what started me on my journey of like, what does it mean then? Like, why, why are people reacting to me this way? And yeah, having to learn my history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Be like, I never, I never like, nobody taught me this. Yeah. Like we had our own Medicare system. <laughs> yeah, or like we were being used as guinea pigs, the, the Tuskegee trials. And that's why yeah. just like as a culture right. too, like we're like, heck no, I ain't getting no vaccines. Yeah. It's like, right. and it's like people just, you know, write you off and be like, okay, they're crazy. But it's like, there's history to that. There's yeah. history to so much. Mm-hmm. That's good. Okay, we have just one last question and then we'll wrap up. One thing that I've noticed out of everything that's been going on is that we've been missing I'll tell you after. Okay. (laughs) I'm like, you know who I see a lot of white women, which is great, showing up at the protests and fight and, and, you know, and fighting on the behalf of racial equality and everything. But I have not seen a lot of white males. Like the American white male has been almost silent. But I'm just like, where are the ADMs or yeah we're in, well, in this fight I have to agree with that and I feel like they are also largely absent in the spaces I show up in um which is understandable because they have the most to lose um mm. I think there also is a lot that they have to gain that they're not aware of but because it requires humility and showing up as a listener and they are used to being in charge and right like I think that's a very difficult posture unless they have an, a level of maturity that allows them to be humble. Um, so in this class I took on uh, trauma, race, racial trauma, there was one white instructor and he was a white male. And I literally sent him an email yesterday because I was like, you are a unicorn. How did yeah. you get to this work? And like, tell me your story because I, I want to understand. Mm. Um, and then I think because white supremacy has such a stronghold in our culture, but people don't recognize it, um, that there's a way that they are prevented because of white supremacy. So I didn't know this either, but there's 13 characteristics of white supremacy in the like shared commonly understood definitions. 13, mercy. Right. <laughs> Listen to these. And I think that like guys that you know will come to mind. Perfectionism, sense of urgency, defensiveness, quantity over quality, worship mm. of the written word, paternalism, either or thinking, power hoarding, fear of open conflict, individualism, progress is always bigger and more, mm. objectivity, and the right to comfort. Oof. So that's wow. a big list. And I think once we're aware of the ways those 
values are operating in our own lives, like bigger is always better. Of course. Like that's almost like a no brainer, but at the expense of what? And I think if we want to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural organization, whether that's a church, a school or whatever, we often have token representation of non-white people, but Mm. only allow them if they adapt to or conform to those pre-existing cultural norms of white supremacy. So I think that that's really key for men is being able to identify and name white supremacy as a first step to making multicultural change in an organization. And the average white male that I know doesn't even have that on their radar. So that goes back to our three-legged stool of racism, right? Like education, action, and self-reflection, which is hard work. Um, And when you haven't had to work hard for things and the benefits you enjoy for a large part. I think I can understand that it doesn't come naturally. Um, but I got a letter from my 70 year old dad a couple of weeks ago and floored me. Um, when I graduated, since people couldn't come to my graduation, my roommate asked them to write me a letter about how my mm. pursuit of social justice has impacted their lives. And it just showed me that even for a 70 year old white male, like change is possible and to mm. not give up hope to not write anybody off because of their age or the fact that he still lives in an isolated white community, like that Mm -hmm. he has been listening, he has been learning, Mm -hmm. he has not communicated any of that with me. Mm -hmm. But I I felt really hopeful that like, if my dad can change, anyone can change. And, And this is part of like confession in my own life. Like my town was so segregated that we had in the 80s, my dad performed in blackface with all of our community leaders in our rotary showboat every year. Wow. I painted his face black with my little you know, makeup sponge mm. for him to participate. And I just think yeah. like the forces that be would have never had me meet and know a person of color and understand mm. that they're human and understand that I had some learning to do, that whiteness mattered. But the fact that we are here today that Uh, God's grace allowed my eyes to be opened and that my dad who is named after Robert E. Lee is now reading books and he like went to see an actual green book in the museum in Mm. Kalamazoo, Michigan where he lives and gone to Montgomery for to, to see the memorial for peace and justice. He stood where slaves were auctioned off and like wrote to me about like the way his skin felt in that experience, you know, Mm. like that this is possible, that it is God, I think is making a way and we can partner Mm. with God to open our eyes and to, to change the world. But we, we have to do it collectively. It's no one individual is going to be able to do it on their own. Mm -hmm. But I think if people can own that, like it doesn't paralyze you. It actually gives you a way to work and engage, mm. something to do. And that to me is like where I find hope because my dad is seven. He just turned 70. Mm-hmm. And for him to be willing to engage in this level where like we can't have a conversation about like, do you have a boyfriend? Like we don't have like <laughs> conversations about anything that could be like a little risky. Um mm-hmm. So that's where I'm like, don't write anybody off, Sarah. Keep keep yeah. sending in books for Christmas. Keep like bringing it up because you don't know what God is doing below the surface. And I would have never known had my roommate not reached out and said, hey, would you write a letter? Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's why I was like, let me write it. I actually wrote him back and I said, this means more to me than you can know. And I'm sure that it wasn't easy to write, but I'm so proud to be your daughter. Mm-hmm. And could we continue this conversation? And he was like, Yes, please send me a list of questions so I can <laughs> respond over email or phone. And I was like, perfect. Oh, <laughs> your dad is just right, like so typical white male. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh my god! And I will decide. <laughs> oh my god! I didn't be fully prepared for this conversation. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> but I seriously am just like, where are the white men? What are they doing with their time and money? Like. Mm. you know and it's it's really disheartening yeah. and then then I then I'm like okay dad okay let's go like, yeah they may not be showing up but they are listening yeah and that's mm. something that's really important to remember like not just because people aren't responding to your posts or engaging when you bring something up in person like doesn't mean they're not thinking yeah. good 
Yeah, that's good to remember. Mm, they're coming. There's many more letters and emails, mm-hmm. conversations to be had. I think. Yeah. Yeah, we're just kind of waiting for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're in the middle of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And working in the waiting. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and just yeah. all of it. And thank you for who you are, because you are just at your core, like a passionate person. And. Mm-hmm and shift and move things just because you just you reflect the love of our gracious god so yeah well this has been so fun and i just feel honored that you would want to spend this time with me and especially because i'm still in process and i don't feel like an expert like it's just i just feel so blessed that you would take the time to have this conversation. I'm so excited for your podcast to come out <laughs> yeah, and you. for you to be able to influence people through this medium feels really important. So thanks for your work. I know it's a lot of work to do a podcast. It's not just like <laughs> record and done. Like, no, I know. Yeah. A button. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we'll do it. We appreciate you. Take care. Yeah. All right. So nice to see your faces too. That was a little bonus. So. <laughs> <laughs>